the old understanding of pain has become a major barrier to recovery. When people learn a contemporary understanding of pain, their pain is reduced, they are more likely to participate in movement-based strategies, they are more likely to participate in psychological therapies, and they're more likely to take on a self-management approach. And they're the three things that mean people become, they start to become highly likely to have an improvement in their pain and function, sometimes total recovery. you becoming increasingly aware of your advancing age? Do you wonder if you're making the most of your life or fear that the best years may be behind you? Welcome to Aging with Purpose, a podcast developed by Lydia Consi from Avanti Care to help create a movement for purposeful aging because every person and their needs matter. The Aging with Purpose podcast is a narrative network production. Hello, I'm Talitha Cummins and I'm here today with Professor Lorimer Mosley, who is a pain scientist. He researches and studies pain in humans. After posts at Oxford University in the UK and the University of Sydney, Lorimer was appointed Professor of Neuroscience and Chair in Physiotherapy at the University of South Australia. He has published more than 330 articles, five books, and has given more than 140 keynote presentations, and he delivers that research in a simple and entertaining manner. Lovely to have you here today, Professor. Great to be here. Now, tell me, what led you to study pain? Oh, that's it's probably the most common question I get, and the answer to it has changed as I've probably reflected more on my life. And uh, the answer to that question now would probably integrate a lifelong fascination with humans. And apparently, my parents tell me that's that's something that was a characteristic of mine. You know, as a very young person. Uh, And then I had my own uh, musculoskeletal injury as an 18-year-old that as a consequence I had really debilitating pain for seven or eight years. And and as I was in that journey, I was learning about biology and neuroscience as a physiotherapy undergraduate student. Uh, And I was simultaneously learning about clinical strategies and was really struck by how disconnected those two things were. Now, the relationship between the body brain and mind has really come into focus in the past few years. Tell me what you've discovered. Well, what I've discovered is such a, such a small subset of what has been discovered, uh, which we would call in our literature the biopsychosocial model, bio being the structure, psycho being your brain stuff, social being your context. So some of the discoveries that are more relevant to the pain field include the impact and power of how you understand pain in influencing pain itself. And I always like to say that twice because you really have to get your head around this if if you haven't had training in pain, and nearly everyone has not had training in pain. It's very tempting to think that pain is an, is an event that occurs at a particular body tissue. And unless you go on a journey of discovery like I have, uh, and like a lot of clinicians have, and now a, a growing number of, of people in pain have, you don't have any reason to doubt that understanding. But the reality is that pain is a, is a feeling that's produced by your brain in an attempt to get an outcome, right? So normally that outcome is protecting that tissue that hurts. There's been some amazing discoveries showing that by giving people 
different information, their pain can change dramatically. I mean, one of the studies that I did do was a really simple experiment where we put very cold uh, stimuli and we put that on the back of the hand of supposedly normal healthy volunteers. Now, they're not really normal people, right, because they're volunteering for a pain experiment. experiment. So you you might have to be a bit odd in the first place (laughs) to do that. And then we, we paired with that stimulus two different visual cues that are full of meaning. And one visual cue was just a red visual cue, which means hot and danger. The other one was a light blue visual cue, which means usually means cold and certainly not danger. And we asked these people, how much did that hurt? And well, the average difference between pain intensity ratings uh, for exactly the same stimulus with the red light versus the blue light were about four out of 10 points. And there were some people who would have one out of 10 pain with the blue light and eight out of 10 pain with the red light. And there's no difference in what's happening at the tissues, but there's a massive difference in what the brain considers is your need to protect that hand. And that's the cool bit. If we can change the brain's conviction about the true safety or risk level, we can change pain. Sometimes we can change pain massively and quickly. Now, normally with people with persisting pain, it's not that easy. But the fact that we can do it is, I reckon, is just so exciting. So that's one discovery. Yeah, another really exciting discovery, which is a bit more recent and is not in my lab or my research group. But there's a guy in Adelaide called Mark Hutchinson who's involved in this. He's an outstanding scientist. Uh, Some of the work that he does and some of his collaborators do have shown really important uh, processes in the central nervous system. So that's inside the spinal cord or inside the brain where two neurons, so two nerve cells communicate to each other. And we would call that a synapse. And most of the synapses in our central nervous system, they actually don't work without an immune cell that wraps around them like a baseball glove. And these cells are in the danger transmission system. So this is a system that if you do get a a noxious or a potentially dangerous stimulus happen in your hand or anywhere in your body, the danger transmission system will send that message to the brain. And that discovery, it's cool from a scientific perspective and it's very challenging from a clinical or personal perspective, is that that immune cell is responsive to to threats to your livelihood that are not specific to the body part that hurts. So let's say you get a bug and you're getting bronchitis. Those immune cells detect the bacteria and increase the efficiency of the danger transmission system. So we now have a very clear mechanism by which when you've got some sort of chronic back pain, you've had an old surgery, if you like, and you're starting to get the flu, your pains get worse or old pains come back. And we now understand how that can be. So you become more protected when you're under a bit more threat. And that is, from a protection perspective, just so cool. From a reality, the lived experience of persisting pain, it's highly challenging. The situations just become more complex, you know, from a clinical perspective and a management perspective. But the other side of that, the exciting side of that, is that we have a whole new range of strategies that can reduce pain because we don't have to just worry about the tissues anymore. So I guess you're saying pain is a way that our body protects itself. 
but you're also saying pain is an illusion. Is that is that right? It's an illusion in the same way that vision is an illusion. So I'm I'm looking at you, mm-hmm. and uh, my retina in my eyeball is getting data of the light reflecting off your features and face and everything, and then my brain is constructing a visual image mm-hmm. of you. Our visual experience is a production of the brain on a best guess. And pain, we would we describe pain in exactly the same way insofar as pain is a production of the brain that is a best guess at what should be done. And there are times when the brain gets that wrong, just like there are times when, when you see things that are not there. Mm. Like mirages is a great example. There are times when we experience pain when there is no danger. Now, there's a cool study published, not by our group, uh, where supposedly normal volunteers had a a head stimulator put around their head and they watched the experimenter turn up the intensity knob and they started to get headaches. Very predictable. Mm. And and the intensity of the headaches was related to the where the intensity knob was up to. But it was a total sham. So that stimulator did nothing whatsoever, but there was enough evidence for the brain to say, actually, I might be in danger here. How do I get out of this danger? Well, I need a an unpleasant experience that that you want to stop. Isn't that interesting? So what about people with, say, arthritis? How would you treat something like that? Yeah, well, our research group's reasonably involved in in arthritis-related pain. And one of the really striking discoveries in that field over the last 30 or 40 years has been that the, the radiology findings don't match the symptoms as well as we would like. I had a patient a few months ago now with very severe five years of knee pain, diagnosed as arthritis, uh, and somehow she had gone about two years with this MRI and nasty-looking knee pain until one of the clinicians said, you've got an MRI of the wrong knee. Oh, no. So they MRI'd the painful knee, looks heaps better than the unpainful knee. So within the same individual, you have these radiological scan-related findings. It's not everything. And there's there's a few trials that have been run where people on waiting lists for knee replacements, their pain is so bad, they're on the waiting list for knee replacements, undertake an education program, which is trying to get them to understand pain is a biopsychosocial. So what else could be telling your brain you should protect your knee? Are you moving? Now, often the answer is, no. Why? Because it hurts. And then then we can explore that and we realise that's when the old understanding of pain has become a major barrier to recovery. Isn't that interesting? Whereas years ago we would have just you would have advised that person to stay on the couch, rest it, quit keep your feet up. You're telling people to actually get out there and, and start moving. Move. Yeah, or prove it to move it was a phrase that I heard from one of our pain revolution cyclists, an outstanding clinical physiotherapist who works with uh, people with arthritic pain. You know, you have to prove to your system that you can move. Isn't that interesting? I guess today we're speaking in the context of um, ageing and positive ageing. What sorts of – have you seen some positive outcomes with with older people? Oh, there are some really compelling data uh, of – of clear changes in bone structure, in muscle structure, in joint function, in joint lubrication. You know, by, by moving a joint, you, you cause that joint to release synovial fluid. So that's the lubricant. You cause that joint to release the lubricant, which helps you to move. 
If you have muscles that you haven't moved for a while, you adapt to not moving. Right? This, was a, this was a major issue in space travel. You know, people would come back from 18 months, whatever they have, up in space where there's no gravity and they step on the tarmac and break their legs, right, because their legs adapt to no gravity. When you're sedentary, so when you're not moving for a while, the muscles that would be making you move undergo this really interesting change in receptors. Anyone who hasn't done any exercise for a while, when they first start to exercise, their muscles detect that as a dangerous situation. And they send a message. Now, in three or four weeks of persevering, a good coach is encouraging you and you're finding other things that we would call sims, so evidence for your brain that you're safe, lots of education, lots of good coaching. In three or four weeks, those receptors flip. They actually reverse their message to say this is good. You know, cool outcome. That's amazing. So you can can go from rather sedentary to up and walking about essentially oh absolutely i mean they, i have met very few people aside from people who have sustained a massive catastrophic trauma uh, or have some neurological injury so their legs are not supplied by nerves anymore or something like that. if you take those people away and you look at people who have let's say arthritis or i hate this phrase but it's widely used the idea of general wear and tear oh yes yeah. and, and I, I hate the phrase because we don't get wear and tear we get adaptation and strengthening cool right imagine yeah. if you had a car that did that that's what our, that's what our bodies are doing that's what our bodies and our brains and our heart and our lungs every, every, that's what they do so when we look at a scan and we see oh yeah the joint surfaces have changed shape then the way i interpret that is They've changed shape because of forces that go through it when you walk, and they're now better. But we tend to report it as abnormalities, degeneration. So essentially you're putting a positive spin on things and, and looking at pain in a different way. What, what capacity do we have as humans to improve function? You've told us to, to get up and move. What else do we need to do? Well, we, to answer that question, I believe we have massive capacity to improve our function. The best determinant of how much you can improve your function is what is your current function. You know, if you're really, really low, then you've got a lot of improvement that you can do. Again, if I speak to the pain space, if pain is the thing that's preventing you from engaging in life and things like that, we have a real challenge. The pain system has adapted itself to become better at producing pain over time and now you have to retrain that system now that's a life or death system i think it's really important for people to understand it's not just go out and run your marathon because your pain system will stop you Mm. if it thinks oh hang on this is way more than i'm used to it produces enough pain to stop you in your tracks make you distressed probably seek radical intervention and if you happen to see someone who's not informed you might get treatments outdated treatments like knee replacements. So what about pain in the elderly? Well, uh, it's a massive problem. uh, And it's a massive problem in part because of the very treatments uh, aged care facilities get reimbursed for for pain relief are not supported by evidence. And the treatments that they cannot get reimbursed for are. So what are the treatments we know are helpful? Uh, And those treatments, we've talked about some of them, are movement-based treatments, but clinical guidelines everywhere for preventing and managing persistent pain in the elderly and in everyone else, uh, first line is education, followed by active and psychological therapies and self-management resources. 
Uh, there's very strong evidence. When people learn a contemporary understanding of pain, their pain is reduced. They are more likely to participate in movement-based strategies. They are more likely to participate in psychological therapies and they're more likely to take on a self-management approach. And they're the three things that mean people become highly likely to have an improvement in their pain and function, sometimes total recovery. And this is where it's challenging, I think, for decision makers. The interventions are sometimes complex, like to teach someone pain is different from what it seems. You need a bit of skill and time and personal qualities to do that. You know, you've got to respect where, where the patient is up to. You've got to think about how you educate. But I would love to see that an elderly person who's in pain goes to see a health professional either within their facility or in their community, someone local, and that local person understands contemporary pain and says, time for a journey. Would you like a coach? Mm. Right? Doesn't say, what can I do to relieve your pain? And it opens up, I think, for the elderly, like it does for everyone else, it opens up a whole new sense of what might be possible. Uh, so so we, we definitely know that if you can do things with people who are safe, then your brain's getting very credible evidence that you're not in danger, you don't need protecting. So all of a sudden, social activities, combining movement, heart rate increase, you know, increasing your heart rate makes anti-inflammatory molecules. Motion is lotion, movement is medicine. Let's get movement, mates, and heart rate. You know, it's a great package. So I would love to see elderly thinking, well, maybe I could get myself into some sort of walking group. Beautiful thing to do, particularly do it with your mates, family, who you love. You know, so not all... I'm not saying just do it with people who you don't like because if you do it with people you don't like, that might be sending your brain danger messages, which increases protection and pain. So we have this model that we work with patients uh, based around an idea of a protector meter. You have an internal protection meter and any cues that tell your brain you're in danger, take that protector meter up. So you're more likely to hurt. Yeah, if you are hurting, your pain's a little bit worse. But we have a whole lot of cues that take the protector meter down. And we just call those things evidence of danger or danger in me, which stands for which we, we call a dim. Right, so you've got a whole lot of dims. And some of those might be in that first three or four weeks of starting an exercise program, you're getting dim messages from the muscles because of those receptors I mentioned. But you persevere for three or four weeks, exactly the same movement is now stimulating sims. You might get it from the people you're with, from the context. Go out into the lovely bush if you like the bush and exercise. Social stuff. Uh, general health if you're sleeping well. If you're looking after yourself, if you have a sense of meaning, we know that's a sim. So gather sims. We say to people, identify your dims and remove the ones you can and then go looking for sims. And if you're in a situation where you, you want to do a bit more activity and it might activate some danger receptors, do it with your best mate first time, with your favourite music from when you are young and active and getting married. Put that on because the brain detects it. You're getting safety messages. The clinical data say this does work. What we now have to do is get it into the lives of people who are suffering. Get the policy levers moving. Get education at the core of interventions. So they're the things we, I think we should be doing. Let's just ask you one final question. What are some of the discoveries people could use to explore better ways to give pain relief to the elderly? They are adaptable. They are highly adaptable. 
In fact, you can't stop it. Let's remind them that you are capable and in fact, you can't stop yourself from learning till your very last breath. You know the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Yes. You can. Adaptation of your brain, adaptation of your immune system, adaptation of your bones and your muscles and your ligaments and your heart. We can get all that. We just have to deliver the stimuli. So what exciting discoveries, I would think that encompasses the whole lot, that we stop treating the elderly like they're not humans anymore and we we almost take the same approach that I would take with an elite athlete. We just have a different hardware that we're dealing with. We need to acknowledge that. Giving them the resources to take on a journey of improvement and stop maybe just trying to give them something that will give them two hours pain relief. Professor Laura Mosley, some wonderful insights into pain management and how we can really reframe our thinking around that. Thank you so much for your time today. Real pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Aging with Purpose. Links to references mentioned in today's episode are included in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and our Avanti Care newsletter to keep informed and ensure you never miss an episode. To subscribe and to access a wide range of useful resources, head to our website www.avanticare.com.au. The Aging with Purpose podcast is produced by Narrative Marketing, who believe that storytelling can positively impact the world.